Welcome to episode number 15 of the Digital Guardian podcast. I am one of your hosts. My name is Will Gradito. I'm the Director of Advanced Threat Protection Solutions here at Digital Guardian. Joining me today is one of my co-hosts, Mr. Thomas Fisher. Tom, why don't you go ahead and say hi to everyone? Hi, everybody. It's good to be back on the podcast. I'm Thomas and I work as a global security advocate for Digital Guardian. Fantastic. And today we're joined by a very special guest. You may have heard of him. You may have heard of his illustrious his service and a list, and you may have actually been on it. That could be good or bad, depending on the context. We're joined to enjoyed today all the way from Australia, traveling across electrons very, very far away, Mr. Troy Hunt. Troy, why don't you go ahead and give, your, give us a little bit of an introduction, and thanks again for joining us today. All right. Thanks for that, guys. It sounds almost like an infamous <laughs> kind of intro. Uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I am Troy Hunt, as you can probably hear. I'm Australian. I'm down in Australia at the moment. I'm independent. I have some Microsofty titles, but I don't work for those guys. And I instead do a lot of uh, traveling around to, to other places and speaking. And I run workshops. And of course, I run this little project called Have I Been Pwned, which, well, it was a little project. That was the idea. But now apparently it is a big project. And here we all are. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it certainly is, right? Over 245 pwned websites, uh, close to 5 billion pwned accounts, nearly 57,000 pace, and f- almost 54 million paste accounts. I'd say that's pretty big. Yeah, you know, I was just talking to someone before this call, and I was like, it was actually only last year, it was June last year, I rolled over to a billion accounts. And I remember quite specifically, because I, I did it as part of a talk when I was in Oslo doing this event I do there in the middle of each year. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. Like a billion accounts. How crazy is this? And then like the last year and a bit has been hold my beer. <laughs> like watch this. And it's just gone crazy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, definitely your name and the service come up a lot. But why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself? Obviously, you're Australian. I'm a big fan of Australia. And tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you launched the Have I Been Pwned uh, project. Well, the project goes back about four years, and at the time, I was working with Pfizer. And and look, some people know Pfizer, but it's kind of one of these brands behind the brands. If you don't know Pfizer, you probably know Viagra. So, yeah, let's just come out and say we made Viagra. <laughs> we, we also made other things like Lipitor and Zoloft and other sort of big brand name drugs that, that many people may actually be familiar with. So I was working there as a, an architect, which I always sort of say in air quotes. I know that doesn't come across real well on a podcast. Basically, in my experience, an architect is, is normally sort of the thing you do once you've you've been doing a good job of development and then they go, hey, you should stop doing that. You should go and you know, do something else. It's progressing. And the, the problem that I really had with that was I like building stuff, you know, and I, but I also like my career progressing. And it's this thing we all get torn between as technology people. So I was doing my, my architecty thing and, you know, I guess drawing UML diagrams and things like that. And just really missing the hands-on work. And we were sort of starting to, to make a bit of a push towards Microsoft's Azure at the time, you know, putting the things in the cloud. And I really wanted to, to get some hands-on doing some, some Azure work and doing some coding work. So I actually built out Have I Been Pwned. In fact, I think I was on a, on a plane or a hotel to Manila at the time in the Philippines. And it was like, hey, this would be funny. I was, <laughs> we'll just wrangle this up. Because I had a bunch of data too. I had things like the Adobe data breach just happened. There was Gawker and Stratfor and things like this. So the, the sort of the, the first implementation of Have I Been Pwned was, was something that, is, that was pretty simple and pretty quick. And all those same architecture decisions back then have, have prevailed through to today and that they've actually turned out to be reasonable decisions too. 
Right on. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, actually. So this was really, it had its, its origins as a side project for you. That's pretty, that's pretty interesting. You know, I don't know if you know, um, are you familiar with the old Pwned list? Yes. Yes, right. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. And that, that, that so is I the one that got Pwned, wasn't it? Well, there was a Krebs piece. That, yeah. 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 I used to work with the guy who founded that. Yeah. So it's interesting to kind of see the evolution of this as this, as this concept as a service, right? Kind of going out and scraping uh, from various and sundry sources exposed data sets, right? So what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? You know, and, uh, you know, obviously being, uh, for lack of a better term, the allocation point in the repository for an immense amount of data. <laughs> um, what, what are your thoughts with regards to the responsibility that, that you may have as an organization and as a service with regards to safeguarding that, especially in lights of events that such as the one we just discussed, right? Look, you know, I think that's actually a perfect example of, of why I've made many of the decisions I have. You know, one of the things I get asked a lot is people say, what's the password? You know, like I, I'm inside the Dropbox account, show me my password. And, and it actually always struck me as kind of odd that people would ask that because, you know, someone's asking for the Dropbox password and I'll say, well, it's it's, it's the password you put in Dropbox. Why are you asking me for it? You know, it's like your password. Uh, yeah, what value are you going to get by me putting passwords in the system? Because I know the risk that that is then going to entail, particularly in cases where passwords were stored poorly, either in plain text or as, you know, say, MD5 hashes. I don't want to, on the one hand, be out there running all this training where I'm talking about things like resilient password hashes. And then on the other hand, go, Oh yeah, here's a few hundred million plain text passwords just you know whacked in a database somewhere. So that would have put me in a really difficult position. But again, I was sort of saying to those people like, why do you want something that you already know? And around the Ashley Madison time, so this is around August 2015. You know, like that was obviously a massive story, and I was getting bombarded with requests again, people saying. Yeah, tell me what data was in there. Like, you know, tell me, like, literally my sexuality and the things that I enjoy in the bedroom. And okay, other than me not really wanting to have that discussion with them, I'm sort of going, <laughs> well, it's it's what you put in the system. Like, why are you asking me for this? And the penny that sort of dropped at that time is the curiosity that people have is not so much that they want to know what their data was. They already know that already. They want to know what other people know about them. And, and this is like my great insightful piece out of the podcast. I don't know if you'll get many more. But <laughs> the point is, is that this is a really interesting social observation where people have this curiosity about what is out there about them. But to the original question, if I was in a position to tell them, I'd have to take on a huge amount of risk. And as it stands at the moment, like the worst case scenario is if everything in that Azure service gets owned, there's going to be a hell of a lot of email addresses and I don't want that to happen. But they are email addresses that have already appeared in all these other breach corpuses as well. Uh, and, and that's just sort of one of these points where I've had to go, look, I think this is a valuable service. I have to draw a line somewhere in order to protect uh, not just other people, but myself as well. Yeah, to a certain extent. Is that data, do you really necessarily need to show that data off? I mean, I mean, I like the way you do it, but enter your email address and I'll check if it's been, if it's been discovered in one of the data breaches. It's, it's simple and it's effective, right? I mean, you don't really need that additional information. Well, you certainly don't need it in order to give a, a binary answer, right? I mean, you, you're either in there or, or you are not. And again, like I, I appreciate what it is that's driving people to ask. 
But I think it's it's almost sort of an incidental piece of information to the primary objective of the service, which is to tell people where they've been exposed, uh, not what precisely about them as an individual has been exposed. Now, having said that as well, every breach does say, here are the data attributes that are in there, you know, email address, username, password, date of birth. So it says these are the attributes that have appeared in the breach. It just doesn't tell them this is what the value on your record was. Yeah. When I participated in your talk that you you had in London back in June, um, I found there was one interesting thing you were talking about, which is how you get that information because you don't really – a lot of times you're not actually scraping that information if I I understood you correctly. But people are actually contacting you saying, I think this data has been breached or I have this breach data. Do you want it? Doesn't that pose some kind of legal – or some kind of ethical problems for you when somebody's actually calling you up and saying, I've got all this breach data that I found from this company? And how do you deal with that? And how do you verify that it is actually valid? Yeah, it's a good question. Got any other questions? No, 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 I'll answer. <laughs> like, let, let's just... Well, I mean, it's key, right? <laughs> no, it, it, it is actually a, a very good question. And, a, and I am very transparent about how the data comes and, and how I make these decisions. And I th- think one of the things we've got to do is sort of clarify the, the sort of different classes of, of data in terms of how it's actually obtained. And at, at the one end of the scale, we, we've sort of got cases like, say, Ashley Madison, where this data is so deliberately redistributed very clearly intentionally for maximum impact. I mean, they torrented that thing extensively before the you know press came out and that the number one goal of these folks was obviously just to get that data out there as broadly as possible. So in terms of obtaining that, it's like, yeah, it's, it's not hard. It's, it's everywhere. And that's kind of at this one end of the scale. And, and, and from the, the sort of perspective of should this data be out there circulating, well, look, it's, it's, that genie's never going back in the bottle. It's everywhere. At the other end of the scale, we, we have other incidents, particularly when we think about things like exposed MongoDBs, and we saw this a lot late last year and early into this year, where there'd just be MongoDBs in publicly facing network segments with no password, like just the most trivial thing ever. And then we also see cases where we've got database backups published to publicly facing web servers. But I'll, I'll sort of give you a couple of scenarios where I've handled things differently. So you know, one was someone popped up bang on a year ago, actually. It was almost a year ago to the day. And they said, hey, I've found a database backup of the Red Cross blood service mm. in Australia. I remember you tweeting about this. Yeah, right. So, so this ended up being a pretty big story because it was our largest ever data breach down here. And there were over half a million records in there. My record was in there. My wife's record was in there because we donated blood. So they had things like our names, our birth dates. They had things like our eligibility questions, uh, including questions like, have you had at-risk sexual activity, which is code for have you slept with a prostitute? So, you know, like some really sensitive stuff in there. Now, this was a case where the, the database had been inadvertently published to a, a publicly facing web server. It looks like it had only very recently happened. Someone was just scanning through the IPv4 address range, found the database, got in touch with me. Uh, and then I went through uh, our local cert, actually, and then they sort of handled the, the process with Red Cross. But what we learned from this process is that there was no evidence that that data had been obtained by anyone else other than this one individual. So, so one person managed to, to find it, picked it up. We saw no indicators it was any further than that. And in that particular case, I didn't load anything to have I been pwned. And w- what I really wanted to do there was, was to, to sort of 
I guess, help give assurance to people that this thing had been cleaned up. You know, this thing was was gone. Every known copy of it, and we're pretty confident there weren't any others, had been removed. Now, if, if we sort of fast forward to, to only last week to another case that, that is similar in many ways, it, it's this like massive, crazy South African data breach where someone also managed to sort of scan around the IPv4 address range, uh, found a publicly facing database backup, about 27 gigabytes of everyone in South Africa, like literally everyone. So 66 million records. Uh, and, and actually, it's, it's more than everyone because there's only 55 million people there. So it's like 55 million living people in South Africa, including children, uh, and a whole bunch of deceased people. And for some reason, all of that information was actually required by a real estate agent. And a real estate agent backed it up. Now, the, the problem there was that this then dated back to at the very earliest March this year. So it had been sitting there for seven months. And that was since the guy found it and sent it to me. And it just it literally took me seven months before I managed to get through my big stash of, of incidents and look at it. Uh, and the file was actually dated all the way back to 2015. So this had been sitting there for ages. Like other people have this. And that was kind of a case where I had to say, look, this is, this is an unintentional exposure, but that data is well and truly out there. Like in the, uh, that's another case where it's just not going back in the bottle. And in a scenario like that, look, I'm going to put it in. Have I been pwned? We're going to obviously notify all the authorities as, as appropriate. And it's become a big news story. Now, in terms of the legalities, it's, it, it's just a massively gray area. And I've had to sort of take every one of these incidents case by case and go, look, what's, what's the most responsible way I can think of to handle this, which both makes the organization aware and makes the impacted parties aware. And you know, so far, it's, it, it's always uh, worked out quite well. Well, that's great. Mm, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Troy, what do you think Tom and I were chatting prior to the podcast as we're prone to doing uh, in preparation for uh, bringing guests such as yourself on? And we were chatting a little bit about what you might believe to be, given your, given your position in the industry and kind of your perspective and what you've seen, what do you think is really the largest problem we're contending with as an industry today? Uh, you hear off a lot of people kind of uh, pontificating about a lot of different ideas, some of which have more to do with security and cybersecurity and threat than others, some of which have almost none, nothing to do with them, but are, are tangentially related. What do you think is the biggest challenge we face globally today? Look, I still think it's it's a developer competency thing. And to be clear, like I have a, a bit of a, a bit more of a vested interest in that area, I guess, because I do a lot of training that's very targeted at developers. But, you know, as a result, then that's sort of what I most frequently see as well. And the, the thing that I see just over and over and over again is people building systems, just making making mistakes that, that we have known about for so long. You know, all the stuff in the OWASP top 10, we just see over and over and over again. And within that sort of developer competency space as well, particularly in this sort of era of, of cloud and DevOps and giving people access to things that sort of go all the way through the pipeline through to production systems, very often it's the same folks building these systems that are putting those MongoDBs out there with, with no passwords in publicly facing network segments or backing their databases up to web servers. And it, it all ties back to the mistakes that are being made by individuals and as much as some companies sort of like to go, hey, we've got this fantastic WAF, and if you spend enough money on this WAF, it will fix your problems. I really think that the underlying root cause is the competency of the people building the systems. And what we're seeing now is, is there's sort of enough, I guess, factors out there that are causing those mistakes to be more and more visible than ever before. But I'm, I'm convinced uh, that's that's the biggest issue we've got to deal with. Mm. I was 
based on your experience, because you, you did you did start as a developer, and you were uh, I mean you said architect, but I'm assuming you meant software architect in that in that sense. And I remember during the talk that you gave in June in London, you were talking about one website that you were trying to help, and you kept giving them, telling them that you know they were doing it wrong, and and they claimed that they had fixed it, but then they went back and you went back, or you went back, or the person that notified you about it went back and saw that it wasn't fixed, or they had introduced a, a different bug that allowed access to the data. Is there a way to to get by this? I mean, can we? come up with uh, we've talked a lot uh, you know over the years of sdlc better training i know you know my my son's in university he just he started a couple years ago and he's doing computer science Um, he's going into gaming actually but we were reviewing the the universities and my i mean i was asking you know like do you teach secure programming and i got mostly no's from the universities and a couple of them said yes, but only as the last, only in the last year as an optional course. Do you think we're making mistakes in that domain? Should we be doing something better to to actually teach better practices, or is it just that the, our industry is going so big now that we the the resource requirements that we have is that we're we're kind of doing the you know like let's just ram as many people as we can into it and we'll deal with the problem yeah. later. I, I was just sort of laughing when you said the university sort of doing it right at the end. I mean this is just so analogous to what happens within organisations, and this is certainly the, the way Pfizer did it, as many other organisations do, where they say you know oh, we've got to build a build a project. When we get to the end of it, we'll, we'll just check and make sure the security is okay. You know, so you, you'd in our case we'd sort of outsource this to to, to the, the cheapest bidder from low cost parts of the world uh, the software would be built it would come back and then they'd get the, the the sort of the good security folks to go through it right at the point where they're about to go live which is when you've got no more money and in fact often you've got negative money because you're over budget you're over time like the last thing people want to do then is pay more money to, to fix acronyms that people have never heard of I was going to say amusing but kind of sad that that's kind of the same thing in universities as well now, having said that as well, I mean, we've got a huge amount of people in this industry that have no formal education at all. And in fact, I wrote something just a few weeks ago where, and this was after the uh, the Equifax debacle where people were making fun of the, the CISO saying, oh, she had a music degree. You know, how could you how could you be equipped to be a CISO with a music degree? And that they sort of didn't seem to notice the fact that was 20 years ago and she'd actually done a bunch of useful things <laughs> since then. But I think the reality of it is, is whether it's formal education or informal education, we often don't have security as part of that. It, it just almost seems to be this ancillary thing, which is like, you know, there's this main channel people go down, they learn how to build software. And there's this other kind of niche interest where some people are actually curious about the security things. And I think we're sort of missing the ingrained nature of security because if it's not part of what you're doing from the beginning, then it's always going to be an uphill battle. No, agreed. Don't see how we could uh, we can progress unless we we build it build it in. There is one subject I want to go on later, but about regards to compliance. But I'm just going to mention GDPR right now. Right, one of the key factors in GDPR is 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 you know data uh, data protection is has to be built in. And they've taken that step and making it a, a legal requirement for you when you're trying to protect personal information. Uh, there has something has for me something has to change. I mean, you know, the software development industry maybe needs to wake up and start thinking. You know, we need to do things better, or we need to come up with better ways of doing things. Um, there's too much residing on it. I mean, 
you know, look at look at Crack that just recently came out, and it's 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 all it's all software, you know, it's, it's all bad programming practices to a certain extent. Yeah, um, if you break it down, I mean, there's mistakes that have been made, but but Crack was also a perfect example of, of where the sorts of the sorts of sites that ended up vulnerable to that. Um, okay, so first of all, we we had to have the the WPA vulnerability in the first place. And then they had to find sites yeah. that weren't doing their HTTPS right, you know, so that the demo was done on Match.com. Well, hey, Match.com has no HSTS. Uh, yeah, so, so there is no yeah. enforcement of a secure connection. Uh, so someone had to screw that up as well. And this is in an era where the adoption of HTTPS is, is absolutely massive and it's easier and freer than ever. Why do we still have sites like that screwing this up? And this is also in an era where we just had Chrome 62 launch and start giving you warnings if you've got an input box on a page without HTTPS. So why we yeah. need sites that, that screw that up so badly as well is, well, I, I was going to say it's beyond me. It's not. Like I know the reasons, but it's hard to feel sympathetic because these are ultimately programming mistakes that have been made that, that are now leading to this sort of situation. Now, if we talk about compliance, in what you do with, with Have I Been Pwned and everything uh, and, and data breach and you know the, the way that you handle data breach notifications, you know, everybody's talking about GDPR nowadays because of the impact it's going to have, uh, the global impact that it has. But do you see that as a first step to a more global, like, wave of these types of, of legal frameworks being deployed? I mean, I know in Australia, you, you know, there were, I think your parliament voted one back in February, was it, or March? A data breach, some kind of data breach legislation, which requires you to report within 30 days of detection or then there's also a whole bunch of local data breaches in each state in the U.S., depending on the state. Some have them, some don't. Some have more more, more stricter versions. Do you think that's one way to go, to, to start to wake up the industry and wake up companies? There are so many angles to this. I mean, the, the, the GDPR one, I guess the hope we have is that we actually see some organizations that do such a bad job of security get hit with the whole sort of 4% of gross annual revenue thing. And, you know, like I often use the example of TalkTalk Talk, where TalkTalk Talk in the UK, the big telco that got owned by basic SQL injection that, that a child was was using just with SQL map. And they say, hey, um, this thing cost us a bunch of money. They say it cost them about 42 million pounds. But the, the fine they got from the ICO was something like 400,000 pounds uh, off revenue of, of billions. And I think that when I did the mass at the time, I went, this was this was like the equivalent of if you earn $100,000 a year, you got fined like $20. You know, like it, it, it's lunch. <laughs> and and that it worries me that this has been the fines that organizations or, or regulators have levied. Apparently, it was the biggest fine the ICO had levied as well. They're very proud of the 400,000 pounds, yeah, which is was, like yeah. it, if you earn 100 grand and $20 disappears, you, you don't lose sleep over it, right? It's like, well, I wonder where the $20 went. Now, if you turn that around and they actually had got hit with the full whack of GDPR, that turned into something like 72 million pounds. And you suddenly start to go, okay, yeah. now it's going to hurt. If you earn 100 grand and $4,000 suddenly disappears, it's like, all right, this, this actually starts to stink. So we, we kind of hope that will change behavior. But by the same token, at, at the moment, most of the noise that's being made about GDPR and most of the people making money out of GDPR seems to be lawyers. <laughs> so I am really, really keen to see once we hit May next year and we see this take effect, 
what difference it actually makes. Because we've got to remember GDPR is just unifying existing legislation as well. I mean, we've had this data protection yeah. directive in, in the EU for years. It, it's just that member states have implemented it differently. So my, yeah. my fear is that it won't actually change a lot and the, the, the biggest beneficiaries of this will be the folks trying to sell their services and, and, and scare people. Now, when we get to, to cases like Australia with our mandatory data or um, mandatory breach disclosure reporting, the, the concerns that, that I have here is that when you actually look at legislation, it's very favourable to the perpetrators of, of the crime, for want of a better term, being the organisations that have screwed something up. So the wording includes things like, look, if you're a small company, you might not need to notify. It's like, you know, we, we, don't, want to, we don't want to make life too hard on you. Yeah, you've just lost a million customers' details, but let's just make sure things are okay for you. And I'm sort of going, well, why is this a, a test? Like, why do we have to test the size of the organisation in order for them to have to notify the people who've been adversely impacted that something bad has happened. Like, you've screwed up. Responsibility should be on you to now let people know. And it doesn't have to be massively burdensome. This might be you've got to send a million emails. Okay, it's not pleasant. You're going to get some backlash, but you probably should as well. Right. We have spam services for that. <laughs> well, <I> mean, <laughs> like, why, why is this a thing? Now, that the other- I've already solved that problem. Well, you, you would like to think so, wouldn't you? The, the other angle in all this as well is that we're talking about very locally or regionally jurisdictional sort of legislation here. So, you know, GDPR talks a lot about extraterritoriality and this will apply to other countries and so on. Let's see how much it actually changes behaviors in other places. Like, let's see the first Chinese-based company that gets stung by, say, a, a regulator in Belgium because they've lost a bunch of EU data. Yeah, I think until we see that, I can't really see that changing much in other parts of the world uh, and look likewise in Australia until we actually see organizations locally having some sort of financial sting that incentivizes them enough to try and get this right I just don't see it making much of an impact yeah it's funny enough I've I've actually talked to some to some people in in a bank and they were like they're never going to be able to implement the finding schemes anyway so we're not really concerned we do what we need to do and that's it I'm hoping that's not the attitude that they finally took, but it's it's strange. And it's like you said. I mean, it's we we need to see what happens when the first big one comes out. Um, the thing is that there still seems to be so much disagreement about it as well. In some of the workshops I was running, one of the concerns that that kept coming up is uh, that the leadership there would say, "Look, there's this whole sort of right to erase your right to be forgotten sort of thing." But what does this mean for yeah. database backups? You know, like we've got seven years of say rolling database backups. And someone pops up and says, I want my record to be deleted from your systems. And it, it is like one record that cascades back through multiple years of incremental backups and there's referential integrity and all this other sort of stuff. How do we kill that one record? And on the one hand, I understand the sentiment of saying the individual owns the data, they should be able to have it removed. On the other hand, I understand the sentiment of it is just technically infeasible. And on both sides of that camp, there are experts standing up who are convinced that they are right where one says you've got to delete it from backups. Incidentally, we've got a product that will do that. And the other side stands up and says, no, look, it's technically infeasible, so we can't actually do it. Yeah, I've heard many other people argue black and blue, even against guidance from our own Aussie government. I actually did a course on GDPR recently, and I included some statements from the Aussie government about, look, if you're an Australian company and you're doing business, you know, here's the sort of stuff that could put you under this extraterritoriality clause. 
you know, things like uh, are you advertising uh, directly to European citizens or residents? Are you representing things in in uh, euros or krona or other EU member state currencies? Are you using EU languages? Are you using EU subdomains? You know, these are the sorts of stuff that will put you in scope. Uh, and I wrote about that and I've had other people come along and say, no, nope, if you've got any Europe data in there at all, you, you're in scope. Yeah, if, if you build a cat video website and someone from Sweden signs up, you're in scope. And I'm going, no, hang on, like... I can't see that being workable at all, but just the mere fact that people are so convinced that they're right and they're arguing you know, at polar opposites just shows that there's a there's a lot of water to go under the bridge yet. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, I, most of the meetings that I sat in, uh, some of the people just – I actually sat through a meeting where a guy was trying to present about GDPR. It turned into an argument about what was valid in opt-in or you know in the opt-in article, and the question just kept coming back up. The guy was trying to move on, but the question just kept coming back up, and they were like, "Well, how do we get employees to opt-in?" It's like, yeah, you you need to understand what you're doing here because it's not just the person has to say yes. I'm giving you my personal data. If the person comes into con- enters a contract with you, you've, it's an automatic. I you can take their data. As you say, it's a total mess. I mean, I I just hope that it it does become. I mean, the working part, the Article Twenty Nine working party is is trying to is trying to actually highlight some of these things. And they I think it was, it was last week they actually released a really good paper on on employee rights versus versus the GDP versus the GDPR and things like that, but. It's going to come into play. I mean, it's going to fall into 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 reality, and and once people start actually asking for these for their rights to be taken into account, that we're going to start to see things things going on. I mean, one of the I know some of the biggest fears of uh, of some of the DPAs are the number of people that are going to go, go complain because X Y Z company didn't do the right to refer to be forgotten or didn't do the right to to audit and things like that. So um, it's going to be an interesting. I think next year will be quite interesting. It's kind of like what I imagine divorce proceedings must be like, where there's these two parties and they've both got valid points and they're arguing backwards and forwards. And the only people winning are the ones sitting in the middle trying to do the mediation, which is the lawyers. But hey, uh, yeah, time will tell, right? Yeah, exactly. If you were to give just generic advice on how to – handle a data breach because you mentioned talk talk earlier um and there's there's a lot of things talk talk is just it's it's a it's a hilarity in data breach but one of the things that really got whole that whole ballpark rolling was the just mishandling of that data of what of the notifications um you know and Mm -hmm. the 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 way that the ceo presented herself you know in the interviews and things like that we uh, some of the work that we do a lot of the work that we do actually is, is around data protection what do you recommend to um say like a CISO or a CIO or even a CEO what would you say are the key say top three best practices that they need to do when when handling such a data breach it's, it's sort of interesting climbing to talk about this because we just had the Equifax debacle as well uh, and Equifax is, yeah. is uh, sort of the pinup now I think for how to mishandle a data breach so just for context, I wrote something, oh, gee, it might have even been earlier this year, late last year, about uh, I think I called it Data Breach 101, How to Succeed After You've Failed. Uh, so if you Google Troy Hunt, How to Succeed After You've Failed, there's a whole bunch of things I jotted down in there. And they're everything from you really must disclose this. Like honestly, if, if you're a small company, it, it's no excuse. And at the end of the day, if you're a small company, you had a breach, you didn't disclose it and you get found out. You're going to get crucified in, in, in the 
in, in the press and social media and everything, and deservedly so. So, you know, things like you actually have to notify people. The timing is important. Equifax took five weeks. And what's really disappointing about that is that there's this five-week period where your personal data has been out there floating around. You don't know about it. And some other entity had within their power the ability to tell you, and they elected not to. So the timing is really critical. Incidentally, uh, only only a week and a half ago, Discuss, so the, the blog commenting engine, uh, their data turned up in a breach that someone sent me, and I, yeah. I had to get in touch with them and say, "Look, I, I think I've got 17 million of your records, including mine." Again, thank you very much. Discuss, and it was it was news to them. So this dated back to about late 2013. So so these guys are going, "Oh wow!" Like four years ago, something went wrong. They managed to turn this around. So from the point where my very first email hit them to the point where they had something out there in public acknowledging it, they turned it around, I think it was 23 hours and 42 minutes. You know, so from a timing perspective, like that's how fast it can be. And and this wasn't small either. We're talking 17 million records here. Now, inevitably, something like Equifax is more complex in many ways, but the premise of being able to turn around quickly, certainly within a period of about 72 hours, which is what the Red Cross in Australia did as well, is very important. So I think that timing issue is essential. Uh, one of the, the other things that we seem to keep getting wrong is sort of transparency or, or, or conversely misinformation, where organizations will say everything from that they'll sort of withhold important facts, which, which may not be, which may not sort of put them in a good light, but are really important information. So things like, how did we store the passwords? Now, particularly for, for someone like Discuss, which is a sort of techie based company, this was important. And, and they said, look, you know, here's what it was. I, I think it was some, some salted SHA-1 passwords they had. Way back then, they'd since moved on to Bcrypt, but hey, they got, they got caught at a time where it was bad password storage. So the transparency is very important. Uh, even simple things like actually apologizing for it. And this is one of the points I make in that, that blog post. Uh, and, and our Red Cross CEO actually did a really good job of this where within 72 hours of them finding out, she actually had a press conference and she was out there saying, look, this happened uh, ultimately due to a partner who, who did the same thing, exposed data on a, a publicly facing web server, but we take full responsibility. We're really sorry this happened. And, and she said sorry and apologized like multiple times over and just totally owned it. And there were people that were still upset, but you sort of went, okay, under the circumstances, you're being a decent human being and you're doing everything possible to try and now minimize the damage to people. Good on you. Like that's that's the right thing to do. And it's when organizations kind of skirt around this uh, and that they say everything from, you know, one of the, the sort of common, it's almost like code words, right? Excuse code words. One of the common excuse code words you hear is, oh, it was a MongoDB. Lots of people are getting their MongoDBs owned. It's like that, that doesn't make it okay. You're like you still put it out there publicly facing without a password. You know, you're not making me feel better that you screwed up just like everybody else. So, you know, trying to apportion blame in other directions, it just – so much of this just seems to boil down to what are the lessons you would teach your children? You know, and I, I keep coming back to this because i got little kids and you're sort of like, mate, if you screw up, you got to tell the truth. you got to say you did something wrong. you got to say you're sorry. you got to try and make it right. You know, like, can we not as adults and professional organizations follow the same basic principles? Yeah, it's a very good point. So, Troy, right, here's here's a question that I'd love to just kind of get your perspective on. And I think it's actually kind of an interesting one. And we're getting, and I'll kind of, I'll, I think this one and then one more from Tom, and then we'll kind of let you kind of speak your final thoughts. But there are approximately today in the world 
7.6 billion people. Have I been pwned has 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 accounts for four point you know has has four almost five billion accounts identified. At what point in time do you think or have you thought about or have you considered the reality that perhaps could could become you know could very well occur that every every human being <laughs> on Earth's data will wind up in your hands? <laughs> it's worse than that because we've just seen this with our, with our South Africa. So even the human beings that are no longer on Earth are in there. You know, like we can have dead people in there. And, and this is this is what we actually found. There are a, a huge number of deceased parties, like literally the records are flagged as deceased in the data. So by no means do we need to cap this at living individuals. Uh, and, and then, so sort of one point of clarification, the 4.8 billion records is incidents of an account appearing in a breach. So there are, I, I think there's 12 records in there for my email address uh, because I've appeared in multiple breaches. But then, so I guess, first of all, just to be clear, the, the total number of unique email addresses is three point something billion. I'm not sure of the exact number. Uh, but still, you know, it's like this is half the world. Then we have scenarios where we have people with multiple email addresses. So my work email address, my old Pfizer email address is in there on Adobe. Thank you very much, guys, as well as my personal email address. So here's one individual's two exposures. And then we're even seeing some of these incidents have fabricated email addresses. Uh, so some of the spam lists, for example, that I've loaded in recently, they have email addresses where there's just a heap of sales at. And because I've got these domain searches where you can verify that you own a domain and then it comes back and says, all right, well, here's all of the, the aliases on the domain we've seen. A bunch of people said, look, I have never had a sales at on my domain, yet that is in there. Uh, which is curious because it means people are actually fabricating email addresses in certain cases and, and then those are appearing. So when we look at the sort of the world population uh, or even if we just look at the population of internet connected people, which is obviously some subset of that, th that's not the limit. You know, like there, there is no limit to this. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that in mind, Tom, you have any final thoughts before we uh, get ready to wrap it up? Yeah, no, I, I think that we've covered a lot of subjects and it's great that we've been focused on the data breach aspects because I think it's key for some of our listeners too. I think my biggest um, and continues to be one of my biggest issues as well is you know the lack of secure coding practices. I suppose we can just generalize it to that to that extent and trying to replace well I'd say stupid decisions on, on the part of people making coding things in with with tools that are just not meant for that and I mean, risk mitigation is one thing, but actually trying to put a tool into place to protect against your stupidity is just, I just think it's wrong. But, uh, you know, I'd like to thank Troy again to, for participating. It's It's been a great talk and it was enlightening. All right. Well, hey, look, it's, it's been my pleasure, guys. There's sort of endless material on this. And I'm sure if we were to do this in a month from now, there'd be all sorts of new examples we'd be talking about as well. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much the case, I believe, Troy. Hey, Troy, thanks very much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to finally meet you. Uh, where in Australia are you located? I'm on the Gold Coast. So uh, this is actually a place, the suburb I live in is called Surface Paradise, and all of these names are perfectly apt. <laughs> so this is uh, this yeah. is like the holiday part of Australia where we just have like extra sun and beaches, and it's, it, it's epically beautiful. Google it if you're interested. It's awesome. I've, uh, I've actually stayed there. I've been there twice. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, you know what I'm uh, talking about. I, I've been south of south of there, Sydney. That's that's. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're entering. You're, you're entering summer period as well, right? So, well, you know, it's gonna be even better. <laughs> summer's a relative term. I was in Europe for six weeks over uh, over the European summer, and a, a lot of the time, it was like, gee, it'd be nice to get home to our winter from this cold, rainy. London summer. <laughs> it's all relative, you know? Uh, yeah. So, uh, Troy, just uh, one final quick quick one. Um, it's actually uh, more about if people want to ping you for for any clarifications or questions, should they use your Twitter account? or? Yeah, look, Twitter's easiest. Find me uh, at Troy Hunt or, or find my blog, TroyHunt.com, and pretty much everything you need, you'll, you'll sort of find between those two resources. Great. Thanks. Yeah, right up. Yeah, Troy, very good to have you with us. Once again, uh, this is the Digital Guardian podcast, episode number 15 with Tom Fisher and a special guest, Troy Hunt. My name is Will Gragido. Join us on episode 16, where we will tantalize and entertain you once more. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.